Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Let's welcome our good friend, Nathan Sheets. Nathan is chief economist and head of macroeconomic research for PGIM Fixed Income uh, based in Newark, New Jersey, but joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Nathan, I mean, there's so many topics to talk about here. Um, just last week, we, you know, we had the Fed, we had trade, we had tariffs and so on and so forth. Let's start with trade because that seems to be uh, the number one issue driving uh, financial markets here. Just given what we've seen over the last several days, several weeks, how do you think this could play out and what how are you kind of you know thinking about your portfolio and global trade uncertainty so uh it's a pleasure to be here and as you say uncertainty is certainly the word of the day and probably the word uh of the week uh i would uh say that the president's remarks this morning that he's received a call from the chinese and they want to negotiate actually should be interpreted as saying President Trump wants to negotiate. Uh, my feeling has long been that he's not inclined to want to push the markets or the economy uh, to, to the precipice or to the breaking point. And so I would expect that the administration will be uh, finding ways to come to the table. And then the key question is, how do the Chinese respond to that? All right, so we could get out a, a book to analyze both characters and what's going on in their mind space, but that might prove fruitless. I think one of the key questions here is moving forward, how much damage is already happening with respect to businesses and their plans? Do you have a sense of that? Well, uh, right now we have a, uh, a two-speed, two-tier U.S. economy. The uh, consumer sector and the labor market are quite solid. But uh, the business sector uh, is is really feeling a meaningful imprint of uh, the uncertainty that you described, which I think is largely about this trade war. I guess that there's a question, there's sort of an understanding or a feeling that Trump, President Trump will back down or come to some kind of deal in order to save the markets and save the economy because he doesn't want to go into 2020 with a, a stock market that's crashing. At the same time, it's hard to know how much can be rolled back. At what point do we hit the point of no return? And businesses uh, have already changed their plans so much that even some sort of trade truce could not bring necessarily markets back. And uh, I think that uh, I think that's an open question. My feeling is that we're not there yet. But if we get to a point where we have, say, 30 percent tariffs on everything that the United States is importing uh, from China and sanctions on Huawei and the list goes on, uh, we may very quickly get to that point where the impact on U.S. business, on investment and investment uh, plans is essentially irreversible, which uh, means that uh, recessionary forces at that point will be uh, will be quite powerful. I don't think we're there yet, but it's it's a possibility. So on the flip side, to what extent are the tariffs impacting the Chinese economy, do you think? I think the, uh, the impact on the Chinese economy is quite substantial. My rule of thumb is that if, uh, if the tariffs are taking, say, three or four tenths uh, of a percent off the level of U.S. GDP, 
that it's at least twice that much uh, for the Chinese economy. So the Chinese are certainly absorbing a meaningful economic shock. And I think you're seeing that in their numbers. But the key here is that China also has a higher pain threshold. So that's kind of the challenge. The U.S. were feeling less pain, but we have a lower pain threshold. China, more pain and a higher pain threshold. How, how do these incentives that result from that, how do they play through? Well, and I guess that that's the question. You know, China seems to be playing a more hardball this morning than President Trump, indicating that there have not been material talks. So at what point will they be forced to the table, regardless of the fact that they've got a higher pain threshold? So uh, I think that China, I don't know the mechanism to force them to the table. I do think that as they feel economic effects and as the Trump administration uh, puts uh, uh, gives in the negotiation on the table. I mean, one of the challenges before I was at the U.S. Treasury and I'd negotiate with the Chinese. One of the challenges was the U.S. didn't have gives for the Chinese. We were asking them to do things, but we didn't have a lot to give back. Now the U.S. has has Huawei. We have currency manipulation and we have tariffs. And so I think it does open up a negotiation where both claim both sides could claim a, uh, a, a, a scope for victory or that they got something from it. So you mentioned Huawei. That is a part of the, the negotiations that sometimes gets forgotten, but that could, in fact, be a material stumbling block. How, how did this, does that play into it? So uh, I think uh, Huawei is critical uh, I think that if the Chinese leaders were, you know, to disclose what they feel uh, are the key issues, Huawei would be at the very top of the list. So I think that progress from the Chinese standpoint, progress on Huawei is essential. Then the question is, uh, to what extent does the U.S. actually see Huawei as a national security concern? And even if the administration is inclined to want to be softer on Huawei, will Capitol Hill uh, allow it? So I think Huawei somehow has to be included, but there are lots of question marks there. We're speaking with Nathan Sheets. He's chief economist and head of macroeconomic research at PGM Fixed Income. Uh, just by way of background, you also were under the secretary of the U.S. Uh, for the U.S. Treasury, uh, focusing on international affairs. So you're representing the U.S. government. So you come with, with quite a bit of authority on these issues. From an investment side, how would you advise or how are you advising uh, how to position around this uncertainty at a time when growth is still okay? Yeah, so we are we are at a, in a place where uh, there is enormous demand for safe assets, and I think it's significant that in that world we see the yen appreciate, we see the ten-year Treasury yield uh, decline. Uh, investors uh, are 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 seeking those places where uh, they can have some confidence that they'll actually they'll actually be repaid and will be able to weather a storm. And frankly, that's my feeling. This is, uh, this is a challenging environment for risk-on kinds of assets. We are awaiting the press conference uh, with uh, President Macron of France and President Trump of the United States that is uh, coming up in moments. We will carry that live. Uh, Nathan, was there anything that came out of Jackson Hole last week that surprised you or um, kind of made you rethink maybe a little bit of your outlook? So uh, Jay Powell's uh, remarks were, I thought, just a restatement with emphasis 
of what he had said uh, at the July press conference. The Fed's in the midst of a mid-cycle adjustment, which likely means one or two more uh, rate cuts, but they're watching closely. Uh, the, the additional thought that emerged uh, from what Powell implied and then what some of the other speakers at Jackson Hole uh, spoke about is there was this emphasis that central banks can't entirely fix the trade war. And I think that's a recognition that there's the risk of a vicious moral hazard feedback loop where central banks see a weak economy, cut rates, and that gives the president more scope to pursue the trade war. And I think that that was more in the background uh, of Jackson Hole than it had been in previous Fed communications. You were saying earlier that you do think that Haven plays are a good place to go right now where people are going to get their money back and they have that confidence. I guess there's a flip side to that. Those are getting very crowded. And there is a potential that if there is some sort of trade truce, that could completely upend the way that people are positioned. What's sort of the chance of that, in your opinion? So uh, I would say over, over, say, a six-month horizon, I think that uh, both sides, both as I've described, both the U.S. and Chinese, have uh, incentives to find something that they can call an agreement and de-escalate where things are. In the near term, I don't see how we get to a de-escalation. It's going to be it's going to be a ways, and uh, uh, you know, hopefully over time we'll see it. But I wouldn't put a high probability that over the next few weeks somehow this all magically goes away. I wish I could be more optimistic. And to what extent do you think that? I mean, will that weigh on corporate America? You know, we're going to see see it in the earnings coming up. I mean, we've seen we've we've heard certainly in the past couple of quarters um, of earnings that you know CEOs across a variety of industries have highlighted the uncertainty of the trade uh, negotiations, kind of either weighing on their business, weighing on their customers' businesses, uh, affecting maybe capital spending and R and D. When do you expect to see you know, a big impact on corporate America. So we are seeing a, uh, a lackluster uh, global economy. And I think that these, even as the U.S. economy is doing all right, the rest of the world is feeling uh, adverse effects. As we described, the Chinese economy has slowed. I think they're stimulating, but uh, uh, the underlying economy there is soft. The European economy is soft, particularly in the manufacturing sector, and, uh, and global growth is uh, meaningfully below trend. And I think given all of that, that's going to leave a signature in uh, the earnings of corporate America, and a large share of those earnings do come from their, their, their operations abroad. Just uh, lastly here, to wrap things up, you talk about haven bets, you talk about how it wouldn't be a really prudent thing to go into risk assets, and yet we do have uh, a tepid rally underway today on some of these tweets. How long can markets continue to melt up? Good question. Good question. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think what's supporting the equities is the fact that corporate earnings so far have been okay. 
coupled with lower long-term uh, interest rates. And so discount factors uh, are, 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 are affected accordingly. And you put that together, I mean, where else are you going to go other than the U.S. equities? So there is a narrative that things are hanging in there okay in the U.S. Bonds look maybe a little less attractive for the reasons we've described. And, uh, you know, equities have done well, and maybe things, maybe we're all too pessimistic. Nathan Sheets, thank you so much for being with Pleasure. us. Pleasure. Nathan Sheets is Chief Economist and Head of Macroeconomic Research at PGM Fixed Income, which oversees more than $800 billion. He also uh, formerly worked on international trade negotiations for the U.S. Treasury Department. So he comes to this with a, a good deal of experience and insight. Thank you. What is an investor to do as we get a deepening uncertainty around trade negotiations, around global growth, around a lot of things, leaving a lot of investors sitting on their hands and wondering what direction to take next? Not sitting on his hands, Phil Orlando joining us here at our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Phil is Chief Equity and Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Investors, which oversees more than a $480 billion. Phil, let's just start with what we just heard from President Trump, because that has been sort of the prevailing uh, force in dictating some of the volatility right now. How much would you be trading off of any kind of development on trade on any given day? Uh, the answer is not much. Um, it, that clearly the market is under some pressure, uh, given the escalation of trade and tariff war between uh, the U.S. and China. Uh, the if you listen to this press conference, there was a lot of pushback from the reporters who were there questioning the veracity as to whether or not uh, the Chinese had actually reached out to the U.S. over the last 24 hours to restart uh, talks, et cetera. And um, I'm not sure if the president uh, was able to sate uh, any of their uh, desire for some uh, corroborative information to uh, suggest that the talks are back on track. I, I happen to think that the uh, the China issue uh, is is probably one of the three most important issues that investors are focused on right now. And I think all three of these issues are probably interrelated. Uh, the China trade war, what's the Federal Reserve doing in terms of monetary policy and the inversion of the yield curve. And I think that, you know, depending upon what you want to talk about today, all of those issues uh, are significantly interrelated in my mind. So it's interesting. I think we used to see the, uh, Lisa and I, as we sit here and look at our screens every day, and we, see, and, we, and, we, and we see the markets reacting to the tweets as it relates to trade. So clearly trade is a big, big issue for uh, investors. To what extent would this be, you know, a, a real drag on the market in general if, in fact, these negotiations drag on to maybe past the 2020 election, for example? Well, it would be a significant drag. And, and our base case has been that there were significant fiscal policy reasons for why Trump had initiated this trade war, if you will. We've talked about this before, but you, you look at the math. Uh we, the United States, running roughly a $600 billion balance of trade deficit in a $21 trillion economy, that that's costing us about three percentage points of GDP growth. 
when you look at the composition of that deficit, roughly two thirds of it, let's call it $400 billion is, is related to China. China is running a $400 billion surplus against the United States. The United States, Trump, I think was trying to achieve two things here. Try to balance out, narrow, have the size of that deficit, cut it from $400 billion to $200 billion, and in the process, boost GDP growth by one percentage point, potentially. The other thing is the structural issues that have been ongoing now for the better part of 25 years. And by that, I mean the theft of intellectual property, the, 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 the currency manipulation, uh, these are ongoing developments that 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 uh, President Clinton didn't address, President Bush didn't address, President Obama didn't address. Yet U.S. companies have been sort of pounding on the White House's door for a long time, suggesting that that we, our administration, should attempt to do something about it. So, so I think you've got sort of a two front war: the structural issues and and an effort to try to narrow the deficit. And, and potentially boost GDP growth in the process. Phil, when was the last time that you materially changed your recommendation for allocation? Uh, we uh, started the year, uh, remember, the the 20% decline in stocks in the fourth quarter. Uh, S&P was down at about the 2350 level. In our view, that that, that was a complete uh, head fake, that there was nothing structurally wrong with the economy. We thought that toxic sentiment was what had driven the market down. So we actually took our allocation up to an 8% equity overweight. We felt that stocks from that Christmas Eve bottom were going to rebound about 32% over the course of this year. Our target was 3,100. Where we stand now, at the end of July, we, we took our allocation down from an 8% overweight to about a 3% overweight in terms of our model. And in, in July. Our, in, in July. And in our global allocation fund, we're actually managing money, we took that allocation down to neutral. Our view was that at the end of July, looking out over the August, September, and October timeframe, there were a number of things that concerned us on the immediate horizon. Central bank policy uh, and and China were, were, were first and foremost on that list. But as we look out further into that period, Halloween, there, there are three global developments that are coming together on Halloween that a lot of people aren't really focused upon. We've moved the Brexit deadline, remember, from March 31st to Halloween. Um, Draghi is going to transition his uh, role as the head of the ECB to Lagarde on Halloween. Uh, and then the, Chi- uh, the Chinese, the Japanese, are going to have to make a decision on whether or not to increase their value-added tax from 8% to 10% on Halloween. Why is that important? Because the last two times the Japanese increased their value-added tax, uh, that decision, that fiscal policy decision, pushed the Japanese economy into recession. So you've got these three issues at the back end of October. You've got these other issues, central bank policy and China trade, at the front part of this period. So given the fact that stocks had rallied, I don't know, 28%, 29%, we felt that it was prudent to take some chips off the table. Are there sectors here, given where, given your neutral position, given where we are in this cycle, that still look attractive to you on the margin? Some people have talked about defensive stocks, but they're not cheap by any stretch. So is there any place for people to look? So, so yes, they're not cheap, but, but being defensive is exactly where you want to be. Um, having stable demand kind of companies with, with the, the outsized dividend payments, uh, remember, the, the, the S&P dividend yield right now is around 2%. Treasury yields are, you know, 1.5%. And, 
and and the yields that we can get in in these defensive kind of companies are are north of four percent. For for example, I'll just give a plug for a strategic value fund. This is exactly the sort of things that they do, uh, separate and apart from defense. I, I think that that small cap still makes a lot of sense here for a number of reasons. Small cap has underperformed large cap by more than a thousand basis points over the last year. Yet. Most of the concerns that we're seeing are overseas economic concerns. A small cap company is going to do 80% of their business here. The U.S. economy is still in pretty good shape. You've got the dollars pretty strong right now. Uh, a strong dollar tends to uh, be very supportive of small cap companies. So for a lot of reasons, oh, and then, you know, M&A activity. Uh, companies are, are out there actively looking for companies, greater merger uh, and, and acquisition activity tends to benefit small cap companies. So we still like small cap here as well, domestic small cap. Just real quick, since you did mention the yield curve, I'm looking right now at a 210 spread of negative 0.6%, uh, inverting the most since 2007. Do you think that this indicates recession in the near term? So I, I would prefer to look at the spread between the funds rate and the benchmark 10-year treasury yield. We think that's a better predictor, a more accurate predictor of recession. So you're looking at a, a, a two and a quarter up a band of the funds rate with, let's call it one and a half percent on the 10. So you've got a you know a 75 basis point inversion there. That That's absolutely a signal that we're respecting. But based upon our analysis of that cycle, we do not see... An, in, uh, an increased risk of recession before we get into the early part of 2021. No recession in 18, 19, or 20. We are concerned about the first half of 21. Phil Orlando, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Investors. Investors joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.